Hi, everyone. Hello, hello. It is the 16th, the 16th of March, 2023. This is episode 152 of my live chat. I hope you're doing well. Hi, my name is Luke Thomas. I'm the host of this program. You might know me from Showtime or CBS Sports, but this is my personal YouTube channel. We go for about an hour with free questions. If you'd like to get in a paid one, certainly you are under no obligation to do so, but if you'd like to, we'll get to those at the end. On the docket today, obviously UFC 286 is in about 48 hours, actually a little less than if you count the prelim card, given that it's in England. Um, That's on the table. We can talk about leftovers from the last weekend, really anything that's on your mind. So best place, of course, to do that is going to be youtube.com slash Luke Thomas in the community thread that I put up a day in advance. You guys fill it up. You guys like the questions, and then we get to them therein. Yeah? All right. So uh, we'll do that, and uh, we'll have a good time. And uh, without further ado, let's get this party started, shall we? All right. All right. All right. All right. We are back and we have a lot to get to. So without further ado, let's pull up the things here. Hang on. Let me get the uh, questions up for you like that. There we go. All right. Uh, Let's take a look. Okay. First question, Luke. If Aljo has to move up to 145 to give space for Marab, how does he fare against the top five over there, including Volk? Cheers from the cold north, a.k.a. Sweden. Um, At 145, Aljo has a big enough frame, um, I think, and would retain some of his quickness over some of the 145ers. Obviously, he's very good at wrestling, very good at stick and move. I think that would serve him well. Obviously, very good at finding and attacking the back, creating back exposure. I mean, I tend to think he'd do well enough at 145. I don't think he'd win a title at 145. And I think anyone in that 145 top five, given the way you're asking it, like the Arnold Allens, the Max Holloways, um, potentially even the Brian Ortegas as well, would give him some problems. I don't think that's a great... It's not to say a guy at 135 who's the champion couldn't go to 145 and have a measure of success. I certainly think he could, but I don't think it would look like what he got at 135. To me, there'd be a drop-off. That's a big jump. It's only 10 pounds, but it does seem like it's a big jump, 135 to 145. For some reason, 145 to 155 feels a little less. That could just be my imagination, certainly, but just the same. I think the physicality at 145 is different. Certainly, there are some trade-offs. Again, I think the speed and uh, the cardiovascular conditioning for the guys at 135, Marab being obviously a great example, although we're talking about Aljo here. The, the, he, he would do, I think, well, or certainly, I think, good. I don't think he would do great, just because that's just a really difficult ask of him. Um, that's a lot to deal with against guys like, like Max Holloway. That's a tough fight, dude. A guy like Yair, that's a tough fight. Um, Alan Allen, that's a really tough. These are tough fights. These are much harder hitters. These are physically stronger guys. Again, the ability to create back exposure, I think, would be real beneficial to him. The ability to backpack would be very. He's got, you know, Aljo's got considerable weapons, but that's a tough. That's a tough ask. All right, this person asked, do you think that Marab's style of fighting is sustainable long term? It seems like such a labor intensive style. 
It won't age well and could lead to frequent injury. Thanks for all the content. The injury part is a little harder to say. That's very subjective. Um, certainly the way in which you have to train to maintain that kind of cardiovascular conditioning, I think to your point is the, just the amount of repetitions you have to do in training and the amount of volume uh, would be a problem. Sort of a general rule, you can only train that which you can recover from. So it looks to me like he's got, for the time being, really incredible recovery. Not just in the middle of a fight, but like day to day. He has a lot of recoverability there. So that's one. Um, I do think that if he does it, here's the thing. He really looked to me like he had taken a level up in his striking. Um, I believe that he is continuing to add polish. So it's not like... In any conversation about the long-term trajectory of Marab and his style in the trade-offs, because every style's got positives and negatives and trade-offs that you have to make, uh, I do think it's fair to say that like he's going to get better as a technician, which means that even if there is a commensurate slowdown athletically, he can't do the same amount of work for the same amount of time in the same amount of ways, um, it might not lead to the precipitous drop-off you're talking about. But I do agree in sort of broad terms that the amount of work he's doing, even if injury isn't a component, um, you know, it, there will be a price to be paid for this. And I think once he hits it, it's going to be, uh, there will be an amount of time if he works on the craft of his game that will offset any losses in the physicality of it, right? Like there, there's going to be a, a point there where you just simply won't notice it as much, but there will also come a point if he competes long enough where the, any kind of improvement in technicality won't make up for the difference in the labor intensive style. Like, so I asked fight metric about this. I don't know if you guys are aware of this. I think there are only four fighters in UFC history who have claimed in a single fight, 10 takedowns and a hundred significant strikes landed. Let me look up. I know three offhand. I believe there is a fourth. Let me see if the fourth. Uh, yes. Okay. There's only four. Cain Velazquez did it one time. Kamaru Usman did it, I believe, to Rafael Dos Anjos, right? In the same fight, 10, 10 takedowns, 100 significant strikes landed. Uh, Colby Covington did it to Robbie Lawler in their fight. And then Marab did it to Jan. Those are the only four. Those are the only four, uh, and all four of those guys known for in, insane for their respective divisions, insane cardio. I don't think Marab has to keep necessarily that level of um, output in order to have some success, provided, again, that he's meaningfully working on the refinement in his game. But um, so be a little bit cautious about, oh, well, once he declines athletically, it all falls apart. It could, it can be offset a little bit, but yes, there will come a part where he can simply no longer offset that um, if there isn't a requisite level of improvement technically. And even then, of course, there's a limit. All right, let me pull this up. Uh, next one, Keonda, Luke, do you recommend the deadlift? A lot of people love it and a lot of people hate it. Yeah, people shouldn't hate it. I really don't understand the idea of hating it. Uh, yeah, you shouldn't be a fucking idiot when you deadlift. I mean, that's... Like, people always like, I don't like the deadlift. I don't even understand what that means. Like, unless, you know, you've got some really bad experience with it previously. But if you're new to it, the idea of hating it just seems absurd to me. I don't even really understand what it is. Like, what is it inherently about the deadlift that is so dangerous? Uh, assuming we're, we're talking like relatively intelligent use cases where if you're, I mean, understand what's happening here under, an, like, the way you're supposed to do it. 
you're supposed to do it. It's a it's a hinge motion with the hips. They go backwards, right? Your shoulders are locked down into your lats. Uh, you're bracing through your core outward, not inward. Uh, and then, of course, you're sort of sitting into the bar a little bit to get your hips to the proper position. And then you're pushing against the floor as you're raising. It's two motions at once. What about any of that is inherently dangerous? Nothing. It gets dangerous when folks don't know how to brace, when they load the bar up too much, when they just rip the bar off the ground like a fucking idiot and there's no tension in their back. They haven't locked their lats. Like, yeah, if you do it like an idiot, bad things will happen. Don't do it like an idiot. Keep the weight low. You can practice with kettlebells. You can practice with, uh, again, we've talked about the trap bar where the, the gripping is like this as opposed to a mixed grip or 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 hook grip. The gripping is neutral in that way. It allows, it's a different mechanically a little bit than a regular deadlift but just the same it's a good place to start it's a safe place to start really what has to happen is you have to create proper tension proper stability proper breathing and and work on your craft and like dude it's the best thing i've ever done for myself i've had a couple of times where i've tweaked my back um it, they were not serious injuries i was able to get over them in a matter of days um it's not to say that you can do this without caution it's not what I'm saying to you. It's but it's like almost to me. It's almost like, well, look, I hear people crossing the street. You know, can be dangerous. Yeah, crossing the street can be dangerous if you do it like a fucking idiot. If you do it intelligently, where you wait for the light, you look both ways, you're in the actual crosswalk, right? You do the things you're supposed to do. The vast majority of the time, you can cross the street with just out issue, just no problems. Um, certainly I'm not telling you it's as easy as that to get good at the deadlift, but like, oh, I don't like it. Well, then I guess, I mean, <laughs> I'm not like the things that teaches you to do proper bracing, proper mechanics, proper, uh, uh, gripping prop. I mean, all those things, the, the parts where you have to get all the hinging you have to work on. These are all things that are very good for you. It is good to learn how to hinge. It is good to learn how to uh, properly brace. It is good to learn how to properly breathe. It is good to work on your grip. It is good to, all these things are good for your body when done in intelligent use cases. So, you know, I have very little sympathy for the idea that like not everyone can deadlift. Yeah, not everyone needs to go and max out on their conventional, you know, to figure out how much, how strong they are. But can you program hinging movements, deadlift movements, uh, for all different kinds of walks of life and people and, and heights and weights. Yes, of course you can just do it intelligently. This, this is not a, to me, a, a major ask pretty straightforward. What kind of torture and maiming are you contemplating when BC won't end the show after the eighth <laughs> perfect opportunity? Um, yeah, he kills me with that shit. And then he got bitter at me when we had the debate over um, a goat. And I was trying to get my point about GSP. I'm like, yeah, sometimes you got to take your time. And he seems to think that, like, you know, more is better. And, you know, more can be better in the right circumstance. But just more all the time is not better. Less is more in that case. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have a different idea of things. I don't really have to. I don't have ideas about torturing and maiming him. But uh, yeah, that drives me fucking crazy. That drives me crazy. It's interesting. I don't even agree with this per se, but like, um, you know, when you come from radio, we're like, so when you do radio, folks may not appreciate appreciate this. When you do radio, what they tell you, what they teach you is like, you make your intro. Hi, everyone. Live from whatever it is you're saying. 
We're going to get to this on the show today. We're going to talk about Aaron Rodgers going to the Jets, whatever. You set that up, you say hi, and then they want you talking about your show within like the first topic, within like the first 60 seconds. Okay. And then you're going to have roughly eight to 12 minute segments, sometimes longer on if you're doing terrestrial radio, even satellite radio, you're doing eight to 12 minute segments. You have to get in, make your point and get out. And then what they want you to do is I had a three hour show every day. At the beginning of every hour, they wanted you to do the same topics with a different twist on it. So if it was McGregor's coming back, that's one. McGregor's coming back, what does it mean for USADA? That's another. McGregor's coming back, but at what weight class? They wanted you to circle back at all three hours and basically do the same show for three hours, um, it, but in a twisted new way, like some new wrinkle on it because they said that they were getting new listeners every hour. So if you miss the first hour, it doesn't do you any good to then be in the third hour when all the eight topic stuff has already been done the point i'm trying to make here is they were very very hard nose about getting right to the action getting out of it right on time revisiting it but only in a new way like there was real hard parameters about getting in and out and how you were going to do it and to me that's been a valuable experience i think if you haven't had that you have less pressure on you to act that way um and certainly we're not doing radio it's podcasting and that's meaningfully different but i think some of those lessons about getting in getting out i would like to start the show quicker we just don't you know and that's on me too, by the way. All right. Luke, any advice for a 43-year-old amateur kickboxer going to fight in April? I've been told by my family that I am too old. You are probably too old. Um, here's my rule on this. Like, if it's an amateur fight, um, make sure you're just doing it in a state that's got a reasonable amount of oversight for their amateur programs. Not every state does amateur regulation all that well. A lot of them, what they do is just call it amateur and then the promoter doesn't have to pay and the rules are not much different than they are for amateur or you know there's just no blood testing or anything like that you're just fighting whoever the fuck they put in front of you this person could have full-blown i mean i'm being dramatic but this person could have full-blown name your communicable disease and you would have no way of knowing about it including some deadly serious pathogens if that was the thing you were concerned about or who knows who knows what the fuck they got in their blood system you know there's simply no testing about it they may they may keep all the rules the same instead of some states make you wear shin guards they make you wear um you know the rule the rounds are shorter um uh, you know or whatever there's fewer rounds you can have they accommodate in a more interesting way there's more oversight up front they have better referees that's another one too like to me what promotion is it with? What state is it in? And how much direct amateur tailoring do they do relative to what they do on the pro side? So I always tell folks here in the D.C. area, don't fucking fight here. You know, Virginia, if you have to. Maryland, uh, on the pro side, is fine. I don't know about their amateur scene. But I always recommend everyone to go to Jersey. Go to Jersey. They have a much better amateur oversight there than they are ever going to have anywhere else. In fact, Virginia has uh, amateur oversight, but it's relatively new. It's only happened in the last pre-pandemic, but just before, uh, I think, pre-pandemic. It's only been, in, I mean, I can tell you for long stretches of my MMA career, they just, you know, same rules as whatever or whatever the promotion decides and let it rip. And that's who it was. With no, no, no real accountability for who the refing was. Dude, I went to an amateur show in Virginia. I think I've told you guys this before, where the ref in the fight was training partners with one of the guys in the fight, and the guy who was the referee's training partner was getting his ass kicked, and the referee didn't stop. I mean, like, I mean, on all fours, taking punches, not moving, head down, just sitting there for like 30 seconds, taking uninterrupted shots. The guy was standing over him, just beating him like a drum. 
and the ref is sitting here looking at him like, hey, do something. Like, oh, my fucking God. We were screaming on the broadcast to stop the fight. Yeah, you don't want to compete in a state like that. To say nothing, to say nothing of the fact that you're 43. However, at 43, if it's a one-off or a couple-off, there's some decent regulation. They're making you wear sh- – it's a kickboxing fight. They're making you wear regulation – they're making you wear some kind of gear, maybe headgear, maybe bigger gloves or, or shin pads, something. Some kind of way to distinguish it from the professional side that makes it a little bit easier, a little bit more palatable, less intense, a little bit safer. I think that's probably okay. But at 43, bro, you should not be fighting all that much. Your time is up. Your window is either closed or is closing. And um, you should recognize that fact. All right. It's a, I'm going to skip one here. Um, good question. I, don't, I haven't thought much about this one. Luke, how much do you think Kamaru's bad knees are going to affect the outcome of the fight at the weekend? Rewatching Usman's previous fights, I noticed how much he relies on upper body strength to impose his game plan and how weak his legs appear in many positions. John Danaher talks about the importance of using your legs against your opponent. If the inside is accurate, how do you think Leon's game plan could benefit by taking advantage of this? I'm a little less convinced by this analysis. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'll tell you why I'm less convinced. I'm not sure about what you're talking... Excuse me. I'm not entirely sure about what part um, Danaher is referring to I've seen Dan Hur talk about using your legs. When I have seen that, he's referring to a very different context. When I have seen John Dan Hur talk about it, what he means is if you're going to use like submission grappling in particular, you need to have the ability to wrestle with your legs. But what he means by that is often, not exclusively, but often guard. And from your back, being able to press into guys, lift them, um, use your legs as an anchor to spin underneath for like reverse De La Hiva, um, or, or for even for just regular De La Hiva or X or K guard or all these new guards and shit. It's the ability to use your legs in a meaningful way from your back or some other kind of um, you know, more jujitsu related position where you can wrestle with your legs. You can entangle with them. You can, you can, they are, they are almost as nimble in that, in that sense as your arms are. A lot of people, especially big guys like me, they're very good at top pressure, top control. They can use their legs for drive and or, you know, picking up or, you know, heavy singular plane motion, but they don't have the capacity to really wrestle with them. Maybe he's talking about something different in a different passage I have not heard, but to the extent I've heard John Danher, Dan, John Danher excuse me, talk about wrestling with his legs, it has been more in the sort of guard jiu-jitsu context. Secondly, while I do recognize that Kamaru does have some not merely noticeable problems, but he's been somewhat honest about them. I think it's why he does a lot of swimming because it's not as hard on his knees, right? A lot of guys do that. Kamara's hardly alone, although he might have a more pronounced need. But even then, I have seen him use his legs to wrestle from a wrestling context. What do I mean by that? So, for example, in the Emil Weber-Mech fight, he was able to – it's spelled Meek, but it's pronounced Mech. He was able to, like, watch him get on top, and then he threads his legs through – to prevent any kind of stand-up for Mech. Now, he didn't do that as much with Leon in the second fight. I don't know how much of that was intentional. That could be part of it. So there's a question of, like, what kind of game plan was he looking for? Did he want the one he had in the Mech fight? Did he change it up? If he changed it up because he no longer can use his legs in that way, yes, that would be majorly impactful. If you don't have the ability to thread your legs through by virtue of some kind of knee difficulty, either mobility or pain... 
often the two can be related, then that is a problem. That is a real problem. Um, that could be one of those situations that you're talking about. But just to be clear, it's not, it's, it's again, hard to, hard to say. Um, just we don't really have a clear sense of the extent of the injury. And what Danaher is talking about, from my experience, is something slightly different. Someone's asking about like thoughts on Bigfoot Silva teasing power slap. Um, yeah, I don't, I mean, all time terrible idea, you know. Are you going to watch any NCAA wrestling this weekend? Probably not. Probably not. I used to watch every bit of it. Um, you know, you, I've told you guys the story a million times. They, I kind of soured on NCAA wrestling. They don't, they don't care about growing that product at all. Like at all. They don't, the people, I, I, actually, I don't know who's in charge now. But when I was trying to give them coverage, they were keenly uninterested in the idea that they had to give coverage to anyone who wasn't somebody who worked for a local newspaper in Des Moines, Iowa. They thought that that was the bee's knees and that those people should be um, the most important people on on press row. And uh, I tried to get SB, SB Nation actually, one of the few times SB Nation actually um, relented to one of my ideas. And it blew up in my face completely because they refused to give us uh, any help. And their answer for that was, uh, well, we've got these guys who work in Iowa who work for gazettes with circulations of less than a thousand people, but they were covering wrestling all season. We don't want to boot them out now. And I'm like, all right, well, uh, enjoy the extent of your product being limited. So I do like Legion Wrestling, but I don't follow it much anymore. And they don't, they, they don't care. They, they're happy to have what they have, and so I let them have it. Uh, Luke, what's your least favorite lazy and prosaic phrase that's commonly used by fans, fighters, and combat sports media? A notable example for me would be styles make fights. I feel like this is often used as a substitute for thinking instead of quality analysis. I don't know. It's pretty useful. I mean, it's said a lot because it's true. Obviously, there's what it is what it is. Best camp of my life is another big one. Um, you know... Uh, there's a million of them you know i'm in the best shape of my life any kind of thing you see at media day is is a big one or anything you see up in like the lead up to fights those are the big ones uh also this fight was a robbery when like you know the amount of robberies you've actually seen you could probably count on one hand i think i've seen in person like two robberies like real robberies um but yeah styles make fights it is cliche fair enough and some people do use it as a substitute for analysis, but even the best guys will say it because it's it's very true. Like it's it's a it's an inherently very accurate way of looking at the fight game. Uh, it's just to your point overused. Here's an interesting question, Luke: Are there any well-spoken, active UFC fighters that you think could have a future in the commentary booth? I mean, a couple of the guys that you've seen already out there are some good candidates. Anthony Smith, I think, could be a potentially good candidate. Being an analyst at the desk is different than calling fights. There are two different skills. Sometimes guys who are good at one are good at both. Sometimes one is good at the analyst desk and not calling fights, or vice versa. People think it's the exact same skill. It's not. They're very different skills. And only if you really sat there, you realize that there's a certain kind of deliverable for each on-camera experience. And they sound the same or they kind of look the same, but the way in which you have to deliver it, what you're tasked with saying, what your responsibilities are, is all very different. So um, keep that in mind. But I would say Smith's a good one. 
Uh, obviously, you know, Michael Chiesa, I think, is on his way already. I would add Alan Joban to that list. And you're asking about active UFC fighters. It's a little harder to say. Cejudo is doing some interesting stuff on his YouTube channel. Um, I think that uh, from stuff I've heard from him on Eagle FC, again, uh, there's a question of like how that would translate to actual commentary. Um, you know, I'm uh, that it's, it's hard. I, I, by the way, to the extent I've done commentary, I don't think I'm very good at it either. Like it's fucking hard. It's really hard. Um, so oh, let me think of like some other ones out there who have like interesting perspectives. Again, I couldn't say anyone in a foreign language. I don't know about that, but in English speaking language, um, some guys are really good at breaking down fights, but I don't know if they've got like, here's the part too, right? You got to be good at breaking down fights. You got to be good at delivery. Chael's got some of that, obviously, as well. Uh, but like Izzy's like real good. But Izzy, uh, in terms of breaking down fights and what he sees, like I learned so much just from talking to him. But at the same time, he's got a certain flair for the dramatic that's not quite corporate, and I don't know how that would go. So like, you got to find a real interesting lane where you have to be corporate enough to be palatable to a wider audience. You got to know your stuff. You have to know exactly what the deliverable is at the moment you have to give it, and why that's important and what role you serve. Those are all really hard to do. It takes time. So the guys you've seen up there, Alan Joban would be the one, but he's not active that I would add to that list. I think Alan Joban's got a really interesting and potentially bright future in that regard. We'll see. All right, let's go. If Henry beats Sterling, how do you think the fight with Henry versus Marab would go? Henry's wrestling is superior, but Marab's cardio is different. That's certainly true. Thanks for the content. BC is the best. He, he certainly can be. Um, if Henry beats Sterling, how do you think the fight with Henry versus it would? How does he beat Sterling? Not, not saying he doesn't, but like you're asking if he beats him, beats him in what way? What does he have to show in that fight that gives you either more or less confidence about how we do against Marab? I mean, on a basic rule set, dude, Marab is just like he just flattens the division, not in a literal sense, but like his style is built for everyone. Striker, wrestler, experienced, young, lanky, short, doesn't matter. His style is built for everyone because it's just about oppressive. It's not just about. It's largely about. It's principally about overwhelming volume. Just overwhelming torrential downpour of volume. It's simply very, very, very difficult for anyone to deal with. What I would have to see to have, a, a let's say, a greater sense of Henry's potential in beating Marab would be like, just how devastating does his attack look? How pinpoint is his striking? Obviously how good does his cardio look is going to be another big one, but like what kind of damage can they inflict? What you want from someone against Marab is someone who can do a lot of work. You need someone who can hurt him, man. If you're not hurting Marab, you got problems. You know, you can defend all the takedowns. Great. Great. What does that really do for you? Uh, if you can't get the guy off of you, you know, so there has to be, he has to be disciplined with power. He has to be disciplined with pain or you have to cut him or something like you got to do something to him that makes exacting the volume much more difficult to come by. And if you can create separation from him, if you can hurt him, if you can cut him, um, you got to damage his legs. Like, uh, like you, you really have to tear down the foundation of what makes volume for him possible. If you don't do that, he's just going to 
pave over everything. Um, so the question is, who do you like on the roster to do that? Maintain good cardio. Obviously, you have to have some defensive wrestling. I mean, you can't just let them walk over you. But more than that, the ability to create separation and the ability to discipline Marab potentially with power or damage or pain or the ability, uh, uh, essentially an act of deterrence. Um, and who's got the pinpoint accuracy, the timing, shot selection, range? Who can do that? Who's the guy to do that? That's what you really have to ask yourself. That's 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 the guy who's going to win. Um, do you feel like Leon is overlooking Usman? I definitely don't. I definitely don't. I think he's confident, but why shouldn't he be? Why shouldn't he be confident, right? Oh, there's Tuki. She's home from school. All right, y'all want to see her? She's crying. I can't even do this. Hold on. Hold on. Come here. Come here. Come here. Come here, little one. What you crying for? What's what you crying for, huh? You're sad? What you sad for? You're sick? I don't want to play. You don't want to play? Are you hungry? No. Okay, calm down. It's okay. You're going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Well, listen, Daddy's doing his show right now, okay? okay. So I got to finish my show. But how about after my show, you and I go to the park? You want to play? Yeah? Yeah? Yeah. Do you want to get some pizza? I don't want pizza. Okay, we don't have to get it. But I got to finish this, okay? So let me finish this. Let me finish this, okay? And I'll come out and play, okay? All right, you want to say hi to everybody? Say hi. Hi. What's your name? What's your name? What's your name? <laughs> no, what's your name? So that's your first name. Violetta. Hmm? Okay. Hey, te amo mucho, okay? All right? So let me finish this, and we'll go to the park and play, okay? All right, te amo. And I want to play with you, Rosa. Okay, you don't have to. It's okay. It's okay. Why don't you go do something else, okay? I'll be back in a few. All right? All right. I, I want to play by myself. Okay, you can. You can. Go ahead. All right? Oh, no. Okay, Mimo, okay, you don't have to, but I got to finish this work, okay? That's every day. All right. Okay, here we go. Luke, do you know the extent that fighters implement plyometric training in their strength and conditioning programs? It seems like a good idea to me, at least as plyometrics can enhance elastic reactive strength and athletic ability it has quicker recovery time compared to lifting weights it certainly can be i would also say it depends on how you lift weights but um this is a better question for a fitness trainer that's a little bit beyond my pay grade it's a good question i just don't have a great answer for you uh okay here we go francis said on the mma hour excuse me that he was in saudi arabia recently not to say that francis was scared or whatever narrative dana has been trying to push but given that saudi arabia has a long history of leaders and organizations reputations far worse than simply mistreating fighters or not paying a fair wage, isn't it a bit hypocritical of Francis to leave the UFC claiming unfair treatment and then rub, I think is what you mean, rub elbows to people who are potentially even worse than Dana? Let me see if I understand this question. So is the question that, okay, I, saw, I sort of see what you're getting at, which is, hey, you can say Dana's a bad guy, but if you're taking money from, let's say, people associated with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which is known for vast human rights abuses and so on, 
right? Through the blockade in Yemen, which of course the U.S. is also complicit in. But okay, fine. There are bad guys. He even worse people. He'd be taking money from. Isn't that hypocritical? To an extent, sure. Right to an extent, um, and certainly just a sort of a basic question about who you want to accept money from. There is that, but that's really not exactly. There's a criticism to be made of Francis if he gets any any fighter. He just saw Jake Paul there. All these guys just want the oil money, and it's a lot of money, and I get it. Um, but uh, and again, I sort of made peace with the idea that like they're going to be involved in some capacity. But to your point, it's not to say that there wouldn't be criticisms of any fighter, Francis included for doing business there fair enough fine we can have that debate i think it's a fair one it's a separate one from saying as a fighter what can i gain what am i reasonably entitled to what what are fighters owed by fight promotions um and if he's able to go to saudi arabia and kind of short uh, i won't say short circuit but shortcut the system to get a bunch of that granted from potentially very dubious people that wouldn't, it's not exactly a one-to-one sort of level of hypocrisy. In fact, if he's able to get a bunch of money, it would, in some ways it would just sort of disprove um, some of what Dana is saying. I get the idea that there's a certain level of unsavoriness of it, but it's not exactly a direct level of hypocrisy uh, in terms of advocating for your best, um, advocating for the most amount of self-interest whatever that means, or the, the, the your particular value set, treat in this particular case, treating fighters fairly, um, it's not a direct contradiction in that sense. It's not to say it's morally like awesome behavior. It's not the same thing. Uh, but 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 Francis's arguments about Dana are as like a person seem a little bit secondary, right? It, he kind of hints at the idea that Dana may not be a great person or something. But it's principally about the contract negotiations, what he wants and what kind of levels of protection, what he thinks he's entitled to, and who's going to reasonably be able to deliver that. It's slightly separate from that. Um, It's a good question, but it's a separate issue, I think, or mostly separate issue. Okay, thoughts on Vera versus, uh, or Sanhagen versus Vera. I feel like if Sanhagen has really reformed his defense, that he should be able to win that fight. Well, you know what you're up against with Cheeto. Cheeto is the king of the five-rounders, right? Um, Starts slow and then just kind of builds over time. And by those championship rounds, he's really putting it on you. To your point, let me look up Sandhagen's – actually, no, we can look that up very easily. You guys know I've been a big believer in Sandhagen, but he's had some setbacks. And a lot of them, I think, were due to um, some of the choices about how to pursue fights, right? Like going underneath and then accepting bottom position or, you know, going for low – uh, I should say high risk, low probability leg entanglements that you know just put him in a, a bad spot to win fights. That's been one. Getting hit a lot is another one. Let's see if we can see the fight metric data here. Let me pull this up if I can. All right, so here's the matchup preview. Let me look. Look, I'll share it with you here. Let me blow it up too, so we can. It uh, doesn't move much. All right. Now it's not going at all. Okay, hold on. Let's move this around. Hang on just a second here. Okay, now I got it. All right, take a look. So his overall number is 6.51 strikes landed per minute right here. Very high. That's high. Strikes absorbed per minute, 4.21. High, but obviously has a positive differential, so that's great. 
Takedown accuracy, 20%. I don't think that really matters. It's not a big part. Takedown defense, 63%. That needs to be higher. That's a big problem. If we look up the matchup preview itself between Cheeto and Corey. So let's see. Cheeto. He, see, this is so deceiving. He's, he has a negative differential, but it, he's got one of the best chins and durability factors in the entire sport, much less the, the bantamweight division. And he comes on, obviously, as a dominating force later in fights, which these statistics don't really do a great job of speaking to. Um, to me, it's going to be, you're right, I think if there's not been a requisite level of development in Sandhagen's game as it relates to defense, as it relates to um, some of the other considerations that I and others, I'm sure his coaches are aware of this. I'm sure Corey's a bright guy. I'm sure he's aware of a lot of this too. Without that, I think Cheeto might be able to pour it on late in a really sort of damaging way. It's going to be up to Corey to start strong, which he can do, not against Aljo, but certainly he, he can do that. Uh, and it's going to be up to him to implement a game plan to slow down or minimize what Cheeto does in those later rounds, which could be through takedowns, if he can get them. Uh, you know, we just saw his takedown rate. I'm saying wasn't that great, didn't matter. Maybe it does a little bit more. Certainly at a bare minimum to find a reasonable path around this onslaught he's able to just deliver later. Um, it's it's a big test for both guys. I, I wonder what the odds are for this one, actually. I'd be curious to see. Let me check. So where's Corey? Let's see here. On... Let's look at these odds. Share them with you. Check this out. All right, so they've got Marlon as a very slight favorite. He opened as a very slight favorite. There was a little bit of separation, and the line has gotten closer. I'd say that's about right. I'd say that's about right. I think Cheeto has certainly had a little bit more success of late. The way in which he's able to like push the fight in a dramatic ways later on, I think is huge for him. Um it's a massive test of what what improvements Corey Sandhagen has made. You would think a guy who's got that diverse striking and that moving ability, if he's tightened up his defense and he's not like rolling underneath for very suboptimal choices, um, it's winnable. It's winnable. But oof, that's a that, the guy who fought like Dillashaw. I don't know if he'll win. You know, um, but beyond that, he might be able to. Uh, good question. Greetings from Cape Town. Given the importance of wrestling as a base, do you see a future where top wrestling coaches slash schools branch out internationally? Happy to see some of the South African athletes like DDP, Cameron Simon, and Don Madge doing well, but feel their success can be elevated if they can have excellent wrestling game from the start of their careers. We'd like to see more wrestling programs in countries like ours to really enhance the talents that we are producing. You're already seeing some of this in two directions. So, for example, um, there have been... Um, some coaches that have been hired here from overseas to do work. I've seen that in camp. Certainly you've seen it with sparring partners, bringing in guys with very particular skill sets, go back to Gilbert Burns, bringing in some Russian guys who had very familiar kinds of uh, wrestling with the sort of style that um, Hamza Chimaev uses, but that's one example. But like, for example, look at the Hickman brothers, right? Hickman brothers live in Thailand. Look at all the guys from AKA Thailand, all the stuff you see over there. They set up shop over there in Thailand. I don't know what their the state of their residency is, but it seems to be like permanent at this point if they're not outright citizens of Thailand. 
and they have brought their services there. Now that's less a someone else recruiting them to go. I'm just pointing out, I think as South American MMA develops, um, A, so one of two things could happen that you see in other places. One, um, they might be able to hire a coach from somewhere else, another country, and then bring them over, and that can raise the development, and that can have pronounced long-term effects. The other one is just that the level of skill will get better overall, generally, even without the importation of any particular international coach. Um, and that itself will assuage some of these concerns. You will begin to see some of that. But like in England too, like England was one of these places where 15 years ago, you had to fly here to get the training or you had to bring American coaches over there. And now you really don't have to. Now there's enough good MMA wrestling coaches to get that done. South Africa is just further behind in that in that same process. But um, presumably, it, it, you know, and England's obviously, you know, a combat sports hotbed in ways that South Africa is not. But um, at least not yet. But it's got a potential for those kinds of things. Um, just kind of have to wait. But yes, like they could hire coaches who, and I don't know what the rules are with South Africa in terms of residency. Like all these countries, especially post COVID. Well, I guess most of the COVID stuff's been dropped. But still, like it's easy to get like a, a like a permanent residency for like two years. For example, in Colombia, super easy to get that. Um, it can be a lot harder in places like. United States. It can be a lot harder in places like Brazil. It can be just harder to do stuff like that, you know. Oh, here's a good one. Look, after rewatching the Stipe Miocic resume review, do you think it might be a mistake to not take his chances against John Jones seriously? Okay. I understand it was made before the second Francis fight, and for what it's worth, I have a hard time picking against John, but Time and time again, we have doubted him, and he has proved us wrong. For sure, for sure, I've been wrong on Miocic more times than I can. Uh, I prefer to admit. Um, the problem is he's post forty, or forty right at forty. That's one problem. The other problem is he had two years off. That's another one, and he got flatlined in his last performance. Like none of that gives me a great deal of confidence. Also, I wasn't sure what to make of John, and I'm still... Dude, there's a lot of questions that still remain about John that I don't have a great answer for, you know? So, it's not to say that I don't... I can respect an argument that Stipe should be taken more seriously than perhaps I have uh, suggested. And certainly if John lost, that would be... a major event in rewriting how we understood heavyweight history. It's just that I don't, I don't really at my heart of hearts believe he can actually win. I think he can make it competitive and I think he can make it interesting. I just have a hard time believing he could win outright. That's just a personal bias in this particular case. And so I just don't have as much interest in the fight. If you have a different belief about it and therefore your interest is higher, fair enough. Here is my, they haven't even made the fight yet. Let's say they make it for International Fight Week in July. Here's my official, as of March 16th, 2023 prediction. My feeling is that there are some ways Stipe could make it interesting, but ultimately, John, like, do I really believe that he could finish John? I don't. And do I really believe he could take three rounds from John? Um, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical. And as a result, the fight just, doesn't mean much to, or I say it doesn't mean much. 
can mean quite a bit. Just doesn't do much for me personally. Doesn't make me, I'm not very excited about it. Um, I'm not very excited about John Jones in general, but um, I just, I, I, you could say, oh, well, look, you got blinders on and you've been wrong and that's fine. I, I, I accept that criticism. I'm just not really high on the fight. I, I get the significance. I get that I'm outvoted. I get that a lot of people feel differently. Fair enough. I just feel like by hook or by crook, John's going to win that one. And, um, and afterwards we'll be like, oh, right. What was the point of that? You know? So, so this is a good question. The guys on submission radio asked me this. Uh, if Leon wins this weekend, who do you think they would line up next? And if Kamaru wins or loses, do you see him moving to 185 or staying at 170? So a couple things. If Leon wins this weekend, what happens next? I still think they're going to wait to see what happens no matter what in terms of the winner between Jorge Masvidal and Gilbert Burns at UFC 287. Because if Leon wins, and I think it's unlikely, but let's say Jorge wins, well, I mean... Do I need to tell you what's going to happen after that? There's just no doubt they're going to make that fight. Leon versus Jorge. That's just a given. If Leon wins, but Burns wins, they might do that one. Like Colby to me is just not, dude, Colby is just not relevant right now. And that's not to say he couldn't be relevant instantly. He could take a big fight against Hamzat if he wins that fine. But like, as I speak to you today, he hasn't fought in however long. He doesn't do any media. I don't even know if he's updating his social media. I don't I don't follow him, but I don't see a lot of people like sharing it. They used to share it. I'm like, oh, I hate Colby so much. I don't even see that anymore. And uh he, dude, he's got to do something. Like he has to go out there and fight somebody. Um, it just seems like the division's gonna pass him by if it hasn't already. So to me, that's not really relevant. Bilal's an interesting figure, but I think they might want to give it to Burns over Bilal if they had a choice. Um and then you have Shavkat kind of hanging back, and I think he's a bit of a dark horse candidate. I don't think that they would give it to him. But I think if Kamaru wins, they will probably do Bilal because that would be the only fresh matchup, unless Gilbert looks amazing or something, and they have to give it to him. <coughs> if Kamaru wins and Jorge wins, I don't see any way they do that fight again. We already saw it twice, and you know, what is there left to say at that point? So let's just see what happens at UFC 287. The 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 Masvidal Burns factor there weighs heavily on number one contender status, depending on the outcome. So 286, 287. Not that it's a four man tourney, but it feels like those are the four most relevant permutations that either way they're going to go with um, afterwards, right? All the various ways in which you can pair them together. Yes, the second part. If Kamaru wins or loses, do you see him move up to 185 or 170? I think if Kamaru gets finished, he might retire. Um, he'll be 36 in two months. That would be two devastating losses back-to-back. Maybe he doesn't retire. Maybe he ekes out a few more, but he'd probably go to 185, especially now that Style Bender's not the champ. Uh, of course, let's also see what happens at 287 for that because they're going to have Style Bender go right back at it with, with uh, Al- uh, Alex. So it's a lot of different ways this could all go. Also, like the matchmaking model at UFC is it's unpredictable and it isn't like it's in the sense that it's not predictable. It's like, well, what are the biggest fights that they can make? They're just going to go with that one. On the other hand, like there just seems to be a lot of, how do I say this? (laughs) 
I, I don't understand a lot of UFC matchmaking decisions that aren't the obvious ones. Um, and sometimes you guys know the rule, right? Where it's like, oh, they tried to make an obvious one, they couldn't, and they had to go down the line, and what they ended up with was just whoever. Fair enough. There's, to me, there's a lot less rhyme or reason outside of the obvious ones. There just seems to be like what they can just pair together. Um, so to answer the question about Kamaru, he might go to 185, but I think if he gets finished again, um, that could be the end. Someone's also asking, even if he does win, how long would he carry on? Yeah, that part, I don't know, man. A little while longer, a little while longer. But like, even if he ekes past Leon, you know, he like barely gets by. Does he want to fight Hamzad after that? Does he want to fight Burns again? Like, what, is, what does Kamaru want to do? That really is sort of unclear to me. Like, I don't know if anyone at Media Day asked him, like, what is the path forward? You're like, what's, what's, the, what's this next chapter in your career look like? Assuming you get a win on Saturday. Um, I just we don't have any clear answers to that. And at 36, man, time is very much not on his side. I'm gonna put this nasal spray in my nose because I can't breathe. Sorry. Question about David Benavidez's square stance here. I'll pull it up for just a second. Here we go. How do you think David Benavidez's square stance, plotting forward movement, and willingness to trade will work for or against him in the plant fight? It's an interesting question, man. This plant fight, I cannot fucking wait for this fight. This fight is so good, so interesting. Plant is a slickster. He can stick and move. He gets out of the way. He's an evader. Um, strong defensively, great footwork, great energy through the full 12. He's a handful. David Benavidez will often just walk forward, often square, and loves to throw in square stances. It's kind of strange that he does that, but he's got great hand speed. He's got big power. David Benavidez did an open workout, and they were asking him, you know, how, what are you going to do about plants movement? And he had an interesting answer, which was, you're right. He's like, okay, let's say it's true. He's moving around and everything. He's like, dude, eventually I'm going to catch up with him. Eventually I'm going to pin him against the ropes, and eventually I'm going to go after him. Kind of sort of just like telling you what the game plan is, although we kind of knew. But, uh, How's he going to deal when he's forced to fight in front of me? It will be interesting to see to what extent, not just the forward pressure of Benavidez, but his ring generalship and how he cuts off the exits. That's going to be absolutely huge for him because if he can't do that, he's going to be in trouble. He's a square target, quite literally, often a lot. He'll start in staggered and then move um, into, st uh, into a square stance and he gets hit for it. It's just he's able to deliver such firepower with such combinations and speed that it becomes a bit of a problem. So it really, 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 really is going to be dependent on his ability to corner and trap uh, uh, plant. Ooh, good question. Who do you think profiles as a more promising contender in terms of championship potential? Ilya Toporia or Jack De La Maddalena and why? Okay, so they both have very high potential. I don't want to demean one for the other. Toporia is a little further along in his development overall, right? Black belt in jiu-jitsu. We've already seen his wrestling. Like he at his age, I think they're roughly approximate in age. I think De La Maddalena maybe slightly older. Maybe, maybe they're, they're roughly equivalent, 26, 27. But uh, Tapuri is a little further along, but De La Maddalena has a certain level of uh, poise that you can scale. 
Remember, the big knock to me on Taporia is he gets hit a little bit more than I'm comfortable with. Uh, and B, really doesn't have, uh, I think, for the next level of opponents he's going to be facing, the appropriate level of resource management. Like, just everything is fucking hard nose, you know. And that's great against the guys he's been fighting. Uh, but when you get to the very top of that division, like, that's just not going to work great on guys who have good defense, who you don't hit. You're going to tire yourself out. It's it's tiring hitting nothing but air. People think it's not. Like, it's very tiring to throw punches and miss. It's, it, 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 it is exhausting. It can be over time if you do it enough. Um, you know, there really has to be, I think, a little bit more attention paid on guys who aren't going to be in front of you what you're really going to do. He's got a lot of skills. He can strike. He can wrestle. He can, he's got, he's a black belt jujitsu. He puts it all together pretty well. But the way in which he fights, I do have some questions about the next level. He can clean it up, of course. I'm saying if he just maintained what he did. For De La Maddalena, I don't think he's far enough along, but the way in which he competes, if he can bring those other things up to speed, suits him nicely for the next level. So there's a give and a take. Can De La Maddalena round out his game? We'll, we'll see. Can uh, Topuria um, dial back some of the intensity for a more scalable game plan? These are major questions, so they're in different places. I would say both of them have extremely high potential but like anyone no fighter is perfect and so uh what can you really say how come we don't see fighters targeting his knees usman's knees uh probably because they don't want their kicks caught if they can avoid it um i think i don't have a great answer i'm not sure i don't really know I think partly they don't, want, they don't want the kicks caught. I think that's a big one. But beyond that, I'm not too sure. Who's a tougher opponent stylistically for Aljo? Marab with the cardio or Volkanovski at 145? Aljo's got familiarity with Marab, so he might have the ability to, to like find the back and ride it out, in which case... I'm going to say Volkanovski up a weight class is going to be a tougher fight for him. Yeah. Someone asks, how well would Shogun's career in UFC have gone if he had debuted at 185 instead? Well, it wouldn't have really made sense. I don't think he can get down there. You're asking in the hypothetical sense. The other problem is, too, like I remember the days when it was the Hula brothers, right? We always talk about the Pitbull brothers or now the Bonfim brothers. It used to be the Hula brothers. It was Shogun and Murillo Ninja Hula. He was the 185er. So they already competed in different divisions. Like, how would a guy, if you could just like shrink Shogun down in a, you know, in some kind of um, theoretical way? Yeah, he would have done really well at 185. He had a style built for it. Um, he would he would have he would have been a champion at 185 in his time. Like, I mean, through Anderson Silva, there's some obviously major questions there, but um, I think over time he would have captured a weight class title. For sure. Okay, let me see here. Someone's asking, was here, I'll pull it up. Was Marab's performance against Jan the best example of weaponized pace ever? He threw 401 total strikes and attempted 49 takedowns, right? That's basically 50% more than the previous record, 33 of Kane. 
Is it fair to say that when properly utilized cardio is the most potent weapon a fighter can have? It can be. Giannis clearly the better striker, and his takedown defense was good, but he just couldn't handle the pace. So Marab has the best cardio of any fighter in MMA. I'm going to say that right now. And he has the best cardio I've ever seen. Uh, I can't prove that, but that is certainly my belief. The level of output he has with the lack of drop-off in intensity or like the the like look at his technique in the first round and look at his technique in the fifth. There's not much difference. Usually a guy's technique suffers and then they resort to either a different kind of takedown or more brute strength, or you can see that there is a compromising, right? Like here's something that's true in wrestling and in boxing. Your wrestling and your boxing is fundamentally only as good as your stance in all positions or your back. For example, in wrestling, your back alignment, like once that gets compromised, or your back, uh, I should say shape, once it gets compromised, your, your capacity to do that thing diminishes greatly. I mean, how good is your boxing if you're not even in a proper boxing stance? Not very good, right? How good is your wrestling if your back is all bent over um, and your and your head is not up? Like, it's not good. It's it's bad. Look at his technique in the fifth versus the first. There's, there's no drop-off in technique. It's shocking. It's shocking. It's shocking to see someone like that. Um, you would understand if there would be some kind of degradation. Of course, I'm sure you could pinpoint and find a couple of things. But in general, it looks more or less the same. That is unheard of. That is absurd. It's just a level of cardio that is, it's, you know, it's not a big wave. It's a, it's a tidal wave. It's a fucking tsunami. And like, you know, you're not gonna, you can't surf those. You just have to get out of the way of them, you know? Uh, so, is it the best example of weaponized pace ever? It probably, probably. He's already in that elite club that I already mentioned, the 10 and the 100 club. He's already in that, only one of four fighters. He's the lowest weight class guy to do it. Um, he's special. He's special. You just won't see guys like that very often, man. That is so rare, so insanely, unbelievably rare. Okay, great question. Love this. What do you think will be the greatest key factors in Leon Edwards retaining his title? So, number one for me, and this is just, I said this on yesterday's MK. I'm going to remind everyone who may have missed that. Uh, he has got to get off the fence and not allow pressure. Now, that's much easier said than done, but... If you just go back and look at the both fights, both fights, this is true. But even just the second one, principally, where Usman does all of his best work is mostly, not entirely, behind the jab, cutting angles on an occasion, pressuring into Leon. Leon gets up against the, the cage, and from there, the jab, jab, whatever he wants to do, the hands come up, so Leon's style of defending... I think it's also a bit of a problem because he just kind of covers. And that's great for hooking shots around the side. That's one. Obviously, you can level change and go to the body for takedown, or you can just attack the body underneath. Uh, and this is where almost the the almost all of the good things that Kamara was able to do, he did them there. If you take away the offense, 
that Kamaru had behind that warning track line that the two black lines now it's one but behind that black line right whether it's this like it's like it's like two or three feet of space between that and the cage wall if you take away all the offense that Kamaru had there he doesn't win that bout he doesn't even come close now obviously he got finished in the fifth but let's say he just he just he just you know surfed out the rest of that round he doesn't win he doesn't win that is principally the most important thing of anything of anything he has got to find a way to get off the fence, never even get to the fence, discipline the forward motion, the forward pressure. I think counteracting some of the footwork that Kamaru does to kind of cheat his way. And when I say cheat, I don't mean break the rules, but I mean like you you can't see it because he's kind of very sneakily um, moving into the proper position. If he doesn't do that, I honestly don't know if he can win. Like it's so, like it's the most important thing. And obviously you're not going to stop it completely. But the amount of time spent there is directly proportional to Kamaru's chances of winning. It just That's just what it is, period. So that's the first thing. Second thing I'd say is this, the blocking of the punches. I, I It's very easy for me to say this, um, but maintaining a range where he uh, – oh, okay. So um, I'll, I'll give you this one and one more. Maintaining a range where he's not uh, as under the gun from the jab of – Kamaru is important, but also slipping, I think, is going to be important as well. Having some other way to counter um, and get out of the way of what Kamaru is doing without bringing and transferring your defense. I think that's going to be uh, super key. And then the last one I'm going to say is lateral movement. He's got to move, man. He's got to be circling all the time, all the time on his fucking horse, all the time. you got to not be stationary for Kamara. It has to be hard for him to pressure into you. It should be hard for him to find the timing for the shot. It should be hard for him to get any kind of target to do damage with. Think about how many times he was able to get in those like second, third, fourth rounds. He was able to get Leon up against the fence, jab his face, get the defense to transfer, and then he was roasting the body, man. How many times did that happen? It happened all the time. All the time. you I mean, take that away, and it's a completely different fight. It's a completely different fight. Those are the three things I think are going to be really, really, really critical to Leon's chances of winning because he's got good takedown defense. He's never going to be a better wrestler than Kamaru. I don't think he has to be, but I think he can combine the level of defensive wrestling that he has in conjunction with these other things I'm talking about. Like footwork for Leon on this one is going to be crucial crucial um so we'll see it's a tough one we shall see all right we've been going for about an hour so i will go to the paid questions no harm no foul if you didn't get one in it's okay uh all right let's see luke your old dog is the body triangle always better than hooks benefits of each you are the best in the bed i don't know why i'm the best uh <laughs> i don't feel like the best today i can tell you that had a rough one today um all right is it always better than hooks? Everything comes with benefits and trade-offs. The body triangle benefit. Most referees won't stand you up even with minimal activity. It connects you uh, to them in a way that um, it's easy to ride out the rest of the round. It's certainly much better for securing position. Um, so those are some of the positive parts. The downside is it gives you no answer to the numbers game you have to play where they have two hands, you have two hands, you have one head, they have one head. There's there's just, even though you have asymmetry with position, 
you don't have any winning of the numbers game where it's two hands and one or two leg two arms with you and one arm with them because your other leg is trapping right so that's one also when you have both hooks in but you don't have a body triangle you can actually move them around a little bit you can manipulate their hips a little bit more easily it's much more offensive although the downside there is it's much easier to escape from inside two hooks as opposed to um the body triangle so there's a series of like it's like what are you trying to do like how good is your back control where are you in the middle of a fight do you need to steal this round do you really need to steal the fight at the end of the round like hey there's 230 left to go on the clock and now you've got the back should you put on the triangle i don't know do you need to really win the round or, or there's a series of contextual uh, situations where that answer can vary or depending on the person's ability or who is the opponent is the opponent like an anthony pettis who's real good about spinning into people like in that case the body triangle might be better do you have an opponent who sucks at back control in which case you may not necessarily have to have it all of these things should inform your judgment one is not always better than the other i don't know why that's on the screen that's just there because someone fucking put it there so um yeah i don't know what to do about it so i'm just gonna put this one here and take it off all right thought thoughts on bryce mitchell this is from othello he's just putting it in there thoughts on bryce mitchell's comments on your ig post yeah so i put up a post from last week's or i should say othello put up a post on last week's from last week's live chat about people being like well john jones has used and uh you know uh bryce didn't like that um so let me just say this I respect Bryce as a competitor. I certainly uh, respect him as a martial artist and a fighter. And um, I appreciate his feedback. I don't agree with much of it. And let's just go through some of it here. I don't know if you guys saw it. Now, I think he may have deleted some of it. But here's what he wrote that I can see. So he wrote, he wrote the following. Um, Most fighters don't do steroids these days, dude. I don't know what the evidentiary basis for that is. If it's all anecdotal, I'm not sure what to tell him. Independent estimates. I mean, listen, so here's sort of one of the problems. A lot of people who are athletes in general who are involved in anti-doping programs, they take that experience as like having a keen understanding of anti-doping. And certainly it's a very valuable experience, but that is participation in an anti-doping program is very different from looking at the broader history of anti-doping, number one. Number two, assessing its effectiveness across sports. And then three, the particular way in which the UFC's anti-doping program works at scale, what we know about it from an actual at-scale evidentiary basis. Participation, in, I'm not saying is not a valuable thing, but simply saying most fighters don't. Most fighters wear. Most organizations, well, let's just back up a step. Uh, most fighters would not include UFC fighters. The vast majority of worldwide fighters don't operate under any kind of notion of anti-doping what really almost at all. In, in most cases, it's easy to beat. So we say most fighters don't do it. You're, I'm going to tell you that independent estimates, even in Olympic sports, have it anywhere from between 20 to 50% or more based on anonymous surveys done by athletes who are involved in Olympic-style testing. You can decide which one of those the UFC falls under a lot of folks like to tell me about more plates, more dates and Derek, who I respect a lot. And I take his judgment and his erudition on the matter quite seriously. Um, but he has also, he, he so sort of, he believes that John Jones has used, which is fine. I don't really want to challenge that, but um, he has also noted that it's not really all that difficult to get around what USADA does or really any anti-doping program, especially the way which USADA has constructed theirs with the UFC. Um, he has gone into great detail about it. So I'm really not sure what to say. He's like, most fighters don't do steroids these days. I would very much challenge that notion. Uh, he definitely did. He says about John, it's not a conspiracy. Okay, fair enough. 
He got caught twice with estrogen blockers. No, he got caught one time with two of them, clomiphene and letrozole. And uh, he challenged it with an independent arbitrator who uh, sided with him saying that where he got it from, he was able to uh, give them evidence for it. Um, the, the gas station dick pill, this is the famous one. And the arbiter in his case ruled that there was a strong evidentiary basis by which to say that his explanation for why he was caught um, or why it ended up in a system anyway uh, was there. Now you can like that fact or anyone, you can like that fact or you can hate that fact. I understand it, but that's the arbitrator agreeing with the evidentiary weight that his case was able to provide more to the point when he had the Terinobol system or in his system, he tried the same thing, which was, here's all the things I'm taking. Let's find it. And it turns out he could not provide evidence that it was a contaminated case of supplementation, whereas he was in the first case. The arbitrator agreed with his assessment of things, and the evidentiary case is, in that particular circumstance, uh, reasonably strong, at least by the arbiter's uh, opinion. I want to point out something here that's really important. There is a degree to which you are allowed to believe whatever you are allowed to believe anecdotally, what evidence the world gives you and whatever else. There is a very different threshold for what you can prove. And I, I think a lot of folks get this confused. They are not the same thing. And sometimes all of us believe things when we don't have great evidence for them. That's true. But the case of John Jones, as it relates to what we know, is only a function, only a function of what tests he alleged or what tests he failed through anti-doping and what evidence we have through the investigations thereafter. That's it. You are allowed to believe that there is more to the story, but in terms of what is relevant for a particular any kind of debate around GOAT status and more to the point, what you can prove. Like for example, there's a story he hid under the 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 um the cage at Jackson's. Do you think that like if he did this, I would not believe it? I, I, I'm, I, in no way would that surprise me. What about that? Can you prove? Not much, actually. Not much. You can only have a conversation about how that relates to his goat status if we're talking about his results in competition, right? What he did on fight night, and what his run-ins with anti-doping authorities, and what evidence we have for their case or ultimately any kind of case or exoneration. Those are the relevant uh, moments here. That's the relevant pieces of evidence. And as it relates to John, here's what people don't like. They can't decide if they really believe in anti-doping or if they think it's a sham. And what they hate is that John, and you could say he manipulated the system by having great lawyers. You can believe that if you want. But here's just the reality. Everyone told me, when USADA was introduced, that this was going to clean up the sport, and not that it was going to be like a panacea, like there's no more drug use or anything like that, but it was certainly going to be better than athletic commission testing. Then that same system provides several different instances of exonerating information, exonerating decisions, and now it's decided that that can, that can no longer be accepted. Guys, you're going to have to decide on some level Either USADA is above board and, while not perfect, the adjudicating that happened in John's several cases um, holds weight, or the entire system is a sham and he's just manipulated a bullshit system that was never anything to begin with. Maybe Bryce believes the latter. I, I certainly cannot speak for him, but there is definitely an inconsistency between people not 
in many cases, wanting the anti-doping system to be either only punitive and having no justice in it whatsoever, even for people like Tom Lawler, who got super fucked by it, um, uh, or the opposite, but they'll go back and forth deciding which one that they believe based on the individual cases. It's got to be one or the other. He continues. Uh, you know damn well he cheated, he says. And yeah, if you cheat, you lose credibility to me. Okay, fair enough. Bottom line, he cheated, he writes. I don't care how good he looked. He's been juiced the whole time. All right, it ain't fair, he says. Uh, you're not. He says, you're not the one missing an eyeball like Michael Bisping, so I'm sure cheating ain't a big deal to you. Um, I'm going to ignore the personal slight here and just say I think the humanity of my coverage speaks for itself. I've been covering it since 2007. I think anyone familiar with my coverage would have a hard time arguing that they're, that that treating fighters with humanity has not been a part of it. But okay, I'm going to ignore that and just get to the other part. This is the thing that always comes up about Mike Bisping's eye, and certainly none of us are happy about um, the state of his eyesight, right? And him least of all. And I can understand him having hard feelings. But I keep asking this question, and I keep ask, getting no answer to it, which is, show me the evidence that the introduction of USADA to the UFC has made it safer. Show it to me. It doesn't exist because there is none. They tried to argue that back when they were introduced, however many years ago at this point, that it was needed because you're not hitting baseballs. This isn't a basketball. It's not a golf ball. These are people. We need to make sure that this is safe. And yet there is not a shred of evidence that the introduction of USADA has in any way made UFC safer. In fact, it looks much more dangerous than it ever has. Now, of course, what makes MMA dangerous is not just strictly a function of the anti-doping program. It can be a wide array of factors. That's true. But I'm just pointing out, they can't even seem to tease out any contribution in that regard one way or the other. There is not a shred of evidence, none, that the introduction of USADA has in any way made MMA safer. There are, there are not fewer cuts they, they, they can demonstrate as a result there's not fewer knockouts as they can demonstrate via anti-doping fewer injuries few, you, uh, less brain injury nothing there's no evidence at all mma is safer mma is like smoking there's just not a safe way to do it you can smoke less or you can smoke more but you can't really make it safer. It doesn't, there's not really a good way to do that. There are some things, of course, health and safety protocols do matter. But at the end of the day, obviously, the, the reasoning is that there's only so much that can actually be done when you're fist fighting another grown, talented, professional athlete. Like they're, they're, There's only so much you can do. And there is zero, zero evidence that USADA has made it safer. In fact, I think if it did make it safer, people would be complaining because it would actually make MMA less interesting. Different argument, but I just want to point that out. So every time everyone brings up the Michael Bisping incident, it's like, well, what about, well, where are all the other incidents that allegedly before USADA being here, it was a function of like these injuries would not happen but for steroids. And certainly I understand the the, the complaint that Mike has in his case, and I, I, I greatly understand it. The argument is not that anti-doping makes MMA safer. It's that it balances the equation between competitors in any individual context. And that's all you need. That's all you need to say. Hey, it makes it fairer in theory for these two guys to fight than not. Fine, fine. Make that argument. I don't disagree with that argument. But at scale... There is not a shred of fucking evidence whatsoever. Anti-doping makes it safer, period. End of fucking story. Doesn't exist. It's it's just not a good argument. Uh, 
those are the consequences for us who, who play fair. Okay. I know you don't care because you watch from the chair again. I'm just going to ignore that. Uh, but it matters to him. Fair enough. I don't just let it slide. When you cheat like that, it makes you a thief, liar, and a scumbag, and evil all at once. Okay, that's his personal opinion. And then he says, but if you want to be best friends with John, go ahead. You'll have a picnic. Bryce, I have to tell you, I don't think John and I are going to be friends any uh, time soon. We are not friends now. He hates my guts. I hate his guts. This is why I try to explain to people. I don't make these arguments because I like John. I think John is a bad person. It blows my mind that people even still want to work with him. I can't believe that but they do. That is not relevant to this conversation. The only relevant portion is what is the evidence as it relates to his run-ins with anti-doping authorities and what can we reasonably infer? That's it. That's the only conversation we're having here. That's the only one that matters. Then he goes on to say, um, oh, the independent arbiter. Yeah. Uh, he says, you're right. We can trust authority with large sums of money are involved. I don't really know what that means because the independent arbiter in this case do you guys ever hear of the McLaren report? This was the report done that WADA uh, put together a panel to investigate. Remember the, the Icarus documentary? The guy who did the report on the investigation and part of the investigating itself into Russia getting around all the Olympic stuff, uh, it was McLaren. What's his first name? I, I have it here somewhere. Uh, his name is, uh, excuse me, his name is, I fucked this up. Um, let's see. Oh, Richard McLaren. Richard McLaren's the guy. So we're talking about the guy who's one of the most trusted, uh, proven, and thorough names in anti-doping enforcement in the history of anti-doping. He is the one who, in the Terenabol case, uh, with the M3 metabolite, is the one uh, who, in addition to the reduced suspension that John ultimately got for whatever assistance he gave USADA, also said that John's testing schedule and the M3 metabolite, they don't match up. They don't, they don't make sense. And he actually reduced John's punishment even further. If we are not allowed to trust McLaren, or at least in some way nod to his level of expertise in this matter... I don't know what to say. The independent arbitration system is designed to give, it's actually a protection to the athletes. For example, Josh Barnett got fucked by USADA. You know what saved him? The independent arbiter in that case. We're talking about an arbiter who doesn't make money from UFC. Uh, he might make a small amount from USADA just to review the case. Uh, but in this case, he overruled USADA in favor of John based on the evidentiary weight. Again, I'm going to say it one more time. People out there are allowed to like these facts or they are allowed to not like these facts, but they are facts. People want to deny that the anti-doping system has granted John uh, a degree of exoneration. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I, I wasn't on that panel. You weren't on that panel, viewer out there. But the anti-doping authorities are the ones who are, to a degree, exonerating John. Everyone told me I'm supposed to believe these people. So which is it? And also, you're talking about the most trusted name in this case, perhaps of all figures in anti-doping worldwide. Um, 
I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know how to respond to that. I'll just say this again. If people are interested in learning more about anti-doping, it's, it's upsides, it's downsides, it's limits. You are certainly, I, I, I provided reading lists in the past. There are reams of scholarship on this that I welcome everyone to look at. I think once you do, you just get to a point where it's like, are there, are there other pieces of evidence you might be able to conclude that John used at some point in his career? Yes, of course. Of course. Again, going back to Derek from More Plates, More Dates. Yes, of course. Of course you can. We're not examining that. We are examining as it relates to competition. Of course, he's tested out of it. I don't mean in just that sense, but as it relates to his competitive life and his run-ins with anti-doping authorities, it's not to say his record is squeaky clean, but the level of vitriol hurled at him and the level of certainty people have, it does not match the facts by the investigative bodies who looked into this, whose sole job is to do this, and from what I am told by everyone else out there, do it better than any other entity in all of global sport. And of course, you go back to the, to the uh, it's not just the M3 metabolite situation, you go back to the thing that John tested positive for um, in 2017 and 2018, where they had to move everything around for him. The thresholds by which they discovered what was in his system they don't even use anymore because it's unscientific. Everyone thinks that USADA has this math and the science all figured out. Tom Lawler is proof that they make it up as they go sometimes. In cases like that, they did not have a good read on how well products, including innocuous ones, were contaminated, and they fucking ruined Tom Lawler's career. He was innocent the whole time. Of course, I'm not comparing Tom Lawler in the what larger sense to John Jones. John's just the hit and pregnant, the hit and run with the pregnant women and the shooting guns into the sky when he was drunk in his car and everything else he's done. Sure, man, if you don't like the guy, I'm not asking you to like the guy. I am asking people to reconcile with the evidence of his run-ins with anti-doping authorities. It's not what you think it is. It's just not. Uh, Luke, what long-term projects or ventures could the UFC invest in to help improve the quality slash exposure? Well, what am I? Uh, other than power slap. Well, the PIs are big. I mean, do they've done everything. It, well, I won't say they've done, they've done everything. They've done a lot. The proper television deal with the rights holder in the respective countries, no matter where that is, right? Getting the right television deal is, it turns out, critical because that involves shoulder programming, what kind of audience reach you're going to have, right? These are all massively consequential questions. Um, that's a big one. Are they putting performance institutes where they belong? Are they signing fighters from that country and then doing media outreach for them? There was a lot of this that happened in the, the 2010s in Latin America, and I think they made some real inroads, right? How about the people they sent to Jackson's to go train, and they got better, and they became champs and all this stuff. Um, they, they can only prime the pump so much, but it really just becomes getting talent, out of that country, featuring the, or, I said, I don't mean pulling them out of the country, but I mean, um, can that country produce talent? Can they be featured on big cards? Do they have the right television deal? And how many more in the pipeline can you really create? The UFC in large part has done a lot to prime the pump of countries nationwide. Luke, I'm going to DC next week. Anything I should make sure to check out besides the cherry blossoms? That's a big one, although they're already in bloom this week, so you're probably going to miss peak bloom. But um, yeah, dude, uh, DC's, I see that the 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 the, the house is going to have a a uh, a uh, an oversight committee hearing on uh, uh, DC homelessness and um, 
I think crime as well. Guys, I don't know what to fucking tell you. Crime is up relative to 2019, although down from 2020 um, in general, not in, to, not in everything, but in, a lot of crimes are down. I live in the city. I've lived in the city most of my life. You can believe whatever you want on whatever news channel you watch or whoever you get your information from. I live in this fucking city. And yes, of course, like any major city, you have to take safety concerns seriously, but <laughs> so much of this debate, I cannot overstate to you, is just made up bullshit. Just made up nonsense. Especially where these fucking congressmen live. They all live in these like super nice neighborhoods, super fancy neighborhoods where, you know, people are walking their fucking labradoodles all hours of the night. It's just a bunch of fucking nonsense. And of course, you know, if you lived in a city where the government got the chance to just overrule things that the citizens themselves voted on, not talking about the crime bill, which I also had issues with, but just marijuana legalization or whatever, and that the government can just come and override it because of some archaic con uh, constitutional provision is just insane to me. It's just completely fucking insane to me. But, you know, because it's a partisan issue and not what it actually should be viewed as, which is a democratic issue, uh, it's hard to convince people um, that this matters, but it's just a fucking joke to me. It's a total joke. Uh, all right, Luke, what's the biggest issue with Jones for gone? Biggest issue versus Jones for gone? The wrestling or jujitsu? If you had to shoot. Oh, okay. Biggest issue versus Jones. Dude, all of it. All of that. His takedown defense was poor. Um, his punch selection in that particular moment was poor. His situational awareness in the grappling. I mean, dude, it was substandard. His striking is great. His athleticism is phenomenal. He's a smart guy, certainly. But his development on the grappling and jiu-jitsu side is woeful. Woeful. Where'd you get the shirt? Uh, I'll give a shout-out to him. Sorry. It's from um, Notorious Bastards. Give a, give a look for Notorious Bastards. They do great prints. There's a print on the back. It's the same. It's the Hanya mask with the wrench in the mouth. Um, they do all kinds of cool prints, man. I love their stuff. Notorious Bastards. Give them a look. I, I'm not sponsored, by the way. I pay for all my shit. So um, there you go. Ice cream after the park. Yeah, yeah. We'll get some ice cream. Thank you, bro. I'll, I'll tell her it's from Hectectica. Will John Jones' youngest champ record be broken? Eventually, but not anytime soon. Could John Jones beat Stipe's heavyweight record? If so, who would he have to fight? I don't think he'll stick around long enough to matter. In a different lifetime, if he'd started earlier, maybe. But What's that atheism book behind you, and what's it discuss? Also, what does Mrs. Thomas and Tukey ever do? What Do they ever watch fights with you? No. My wife likes boxing. She'll watch some MMA, but not much. Atheism book. Oh, this one? This was a book that was given to me. It's a debate. Uh, I used to debate. And so you can see it's got some, it's got some, uh, it's got some, uh, what you call it on it, uh, dust on it. Uh, atheism, the case against God. I know some of you, this is going to drive you nuts. This is largely a, um, I mean, this book has been reviewed by like, and I'm, Christian apologist. I don't. When I say that, I don't mean like that's a that's a 
these are academics. Uh, it sounds like you're saying, oh, they're apologists, but there's a word for it. It's a specific term. Um, there are some Christian apologists who have reviewed this book. It's mostly, this is not a book you would read to convince yourself or to get convinced that there's no God necessarily. This is a book that was given to me that was for a debating purposes about very specific claims, ontological claims, epistemological claims that are very specific to debating the case for atheism. It's not like, hey, I don't really know if there's a God. I'm going to read this and be convinced. This is more, also some like the academic uh, development of the arguments for atheism over time. I mean, if you were asking me what happens when we die, I don't know. So I don't have the same idea that I'm hostile to the idea of the afterlife. I think we should have a little bit of humility. But if you're curious about understanding the actual arguments of atheists, they're in that one. Um, did you read Kareem Zidane's article about now dead former UFC fighter and disgraced Kadyrovite Abdul Karim Edelov? If you did read it, what are your thoughts on the whole thing? I'm going to hope that everyone reads that. D did you guys see that a UFC vet was executed and that Chemayev has taken his role? <laughs> sort of. I mean, it's not exactly the same, but uh, that doesn't seem sketch to anybody. It's like, what fucking planet are we living on where that's a thing in the sport? But it's a thing. It's a thing. Oh, you already read that one. Here we go. Movie recommendations. In Bruges, you spelled Bruges wrong. It's with an S at the end because if you like British dark humor, Blade Runner 2049, if you haven't seen it, I've seen both. So I've actually, not only have I seen In Bruges, which makes fun of Americans for being fat, which is always very funny, uh, but I've actually been to Bruges. I've actually been there. It's in uh, Holland. And uh, it's a... It's a, it's as beautiful as they say it is. It's awesome. It's great. And I've seen those movies and he's right. They're really, really good. Will you review Chael's interview on Flagrant? No. Were Chael's claims against the Illuminati code? I didn't hear. Will pushing an opponent ever be in the meta? Seems like a well-timed push could open up your opponent. Yeah, sure. But, it, uh, dude, what did uh, Holly Holm do to Rhonda? pushed her into the final kick go back and look she had her turned around and off balanced so you know there's the right context pushed her as she stumbled and that pushed her right into range for the head kick at the end go look at the finish of ronda rousey and holly holm not just the kick the push and then the kick so you can get guys all the time doing that push people down or um randy couture used to like it's less pushing but he used to like to run people to the vents as hard as possible to get the ricochet effect. So then he would push him into the fence. You just run them. The, the fence would give bounce back and then he would pick them up and turn them. That's not exactly pushing in that sense, but um, it's, it's hard to come by as like a way of like programming it in, but the good ones do it. Who would win in a boxing match between Kali muscle and the liver King, not the fans, not the fan, probably liver King, but both of those guys hearts are going to pop. So it didn't really matter. Paulo Costa implied that a potential reason as to why he is underpaid is because he is from a third world country. I think he was pointing to the strength of the dollar in Brazil. Is this true? Well, if he gets paid in dollars, I'm not sure I understand the criticism. Because if the dollar is strong in Brazil, that would increase his purchasing power. I'm not sure I understand. Email me. I, I apologize. I'm not sure what you're asking. 
this is to start a catheter fund for BC. You maybe wash Luke, but at least you have control of your bladder. Yes, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Uh, Luke, can you play devil's advocate for a moment and try to explain some of the negatives UFC would face if they raised fighter pay revenues to 50%? How would it hurt their business? So obviously, if they were to raise revenues to 50%, they'd have to cut some of the roster. They might have to do fewer shows. Um, they would have to uh, eliminate some of these some of the corporate bloat internally. There probably would be some measure of layoffs. Um, some of these projects like the performance institutes and other places would either be halted or there'd be some question about how well they could be maintained. I, I don't know exactly if they would be eliminated, but there's a question about how long-term they would be. So they would have to dial back, I mean, some of the sort of things that they do in the larger sense of the game. But I think a lot of it is overblown for two reasons. One, either it's morally appropriate for these guys to have a greater share of the revenue or it's not. That's the first thing I would say. And second of all, you know, they could also just cut down on the amount of profits that they keep for themselves uh, and then just share that. And like, and there wouldn't have to have a, a dramatic um, effect on the product in the way which we currently view it. If UNBC were a tag team in wrestling, what would your team be called? The Washed Dads? Finisher would be called the Lukewarm. <laughs> it's not bad. Uh, thoughts on Usman's racist comments towards Drickus Duplessis, claiming he isn't a real African because of the color of his skin. Yeah. Imagine if Patty Pimblett or Aspinall were to say that about Leon or Jimmy. The media would be, yeah. Uh, fair enough. I actually didn't agree with Kamaru. Like, if you're just going to say you can only be African if you're black, I mean, you should say that out loud, right? Like if that's your position, I'm not, I don't know what his position is. It sounded like that. It sounded like that. Again, I think Sadiq Youssef's view is the right one. Sadiq has said, uh, yeah, of course, Strickus is African. Yes, of course he is. Um, but um, Sadiq asserted his right that he certainly was as well. Um, it's also just a weird claim, like I'm African. I've talked about it before, like North Africa is not like sub-Saharan Africa. And then certainly South Africa is a lot different than the vast majority of Africa. It's weird to claim like a continent, I suppose. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I have to think about that. Like, you just don't see Americans being like, you know, I'm I'm the real North American guy. It's like, you, I guess you might see some out of South Af or South America, but not even then. You don't really hear it. It all seems very nation or like people specific, like Latinos or uh, for like Spanish speaking Latin America or like Brazilians as a net as a nation. Um, it's just a sort of an interesting dividing line that I don't quite understand its usefulness, but yes, of course, Drickus is, uh, African. And of course it's not true that you have to be black to be African. Dude, the Arabs in the North are fucking African and they're not black or white. They're their own thing. Um, so we should be very careful about, saying that kind of thing it's weird like the, the, like the this is what i mean though like the moroccan fighters we've had some moroccan fighters they've not been like yo we're gonna be the first african champs it's like they're just kind of proud to be arab or proud to be moroccan um again i can't tell drickus duplicy what to do if that's the thing he wants to do then he'll do it it's just you have to you have to widen the scope of who's african not so much narrow it and also again if the argument is you have to be black to be african like dude fucking Kamaru's manager is Ali Abdelaziz, who is from Egypt. Egypt is in Africa. <laughs> like, dude, look at Kamaru. 
Look at Ali and look at Drickus Duplessis. None of them look alike. And they all have roots in Africa. Like, we have to widen the scope, not narrow it, you know. Um, any conservatives whose opinions you respect? Yeah, sure, man. I read a lot of conservatives. Um, I'm trying to think, like, who would be... Okay, I don't respect the, you know, the Ben Shapiro's and shit like that of the world. But like, who was the last? God, what the fuck was his name? I read on like, uh, he was a professor of public policy at um, in the University of Texas, but he's decidedly conservative. He wrote a book on the mercantile class. What the fuck was his name? Mm, I forgot it. Um, I like Charles Cook. Uh, I disagree with him all the time, but I like him. Um, even guys who you might associate with like far left, but like they, I seen they seem much more cozy with the right these days. I, I disagree with a lot of these guys, but I really respect Glenn Greenwald. Um, even though I know a lot of pro- people have issues with him. I I respect Russell Brand. I respect. Um, um, trying to think of like some of the guys that I really like. I, I read Ben Dominich. I read. Um, like another really good one that I read pretty consistently all the time. I'm trying to think of like somebody who I don't, and by the way, there's like a bunch of conservatives I don't like in ways that I think the new right would not like as well. Like I don't like Bill Crystal, like neocons don't like neocons at all. And they seem to be more aligned with the left these days than they ever did with the right, which or with the right today anyway. Um, so uh, I try to diversify as, the reading as much as I can. I'm sure that there's blind spots. I try to, um, do, I realize that like the people who I commonly listen to do not have a purchase on the truth. I mean, you you have to accept that, right? And that goes in any direction. Like you have to be aware, like there's gonna be a shitload of blind spots you're gonna get just reading whatever sounds satisfactory to you and your existing worldview. You know, that's a real bad idea. So. Um, I'm trying to think of the last. Oh, who's the um? Oh, I'll tell you what. I like um Cigar and Jetty from Breaking Points. I like him. Um, yeah, there's a there's a few there's a few. I I, I do my best to give those, and to the extent that the right is moving in a direction towards a more populist right now, I think some of that is not real. I think DeSantis uses the state to oppress his enemies. So I don't think that's real. Um, Josh Hawley, I don't take as a genuine populist. So I don't think that's real. Uh, and a lot of the guys in the right who talk about big tech censorship in the end actually just take money from big tech. But to the extent that there are people on the right who are concerned about big tech and monopoly, I very much value their contributions to the conversation. By the way, how about the war in Ukraine? It seems like there's mostly people expressing skepticism comes from like the Matt Gateses of the world. Uh, I respect that. Uh, I think he's a dirtbag, but I respect that. I respect that he is doing that much more so than, you know, the people who are just aligned with whatever NATO wants to do. Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, thank you, James. I appreciate it. And then last, oh no, we got a couple more. Have you read Dark Money? Not yet. Fantastic book. I like you a lot, man. I feel like, I feel the pain of losing a parent at a young age. Yeah, man. It's a shitty club to be in. And then last but not least, Bigfoot Silva teasing a power slap, baby. Perhaps perhaps there is a benefit to the state. I'll say this. 
if the state commission in whatever state this ends up being in refuses to give him a license, that would be some value to having the state oversee it. I don't think that's still a reason why the state should be overseeing it, but that at least provides some benefit. Um, but, uh, dude, like to go from MMA to like, you know, like you're just falling through like the professional ranks and then you, you take so many losses that you have to just take whatever fights you can, like Russia and shit, you know, where there's just no oversight. And then that turns into like BKFC or, you know, just bare knuckle. I'm not even going to call BKFC out. And then it turns into like power slap. I mean, he's going through every stop on the CTE highway that it, before you get to like full on tragedy. It's a, it's a mess. It's a mess. All right. Um, thank you guys so much for watching. I appreciate it. This podcast will be up tonight as it customarily is. We'll get the thumbnail changed in a couple of hours. Email me, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com if you have any questions. Appreciate you tuning in. Uh, there will be a post-fight show for UFC 286. I'm just not going to host it on Saturday. I'm going to be hanging out with Othello, having a good time. All right? Thank you guys so much for watching, and until next time, stay frosty. Yeah? <laughs>